everybody. How are you guys doing? This is Heidi St. John, and you have found me at my little corner of the internet. Welcome to Off the Bench with Heidi St. John. Today is April the 1st, you guys. It's April Fool's Day, and I am kind of excited because instead of giving you an April Fool's joke, I've got one of my favorite people on the show with me today. Pastor Phil Hopper is on the podcast today, and we are going to answer some of your questions. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. for tuning in today, you guys. Lots of things happening coming up on my calendar. You guys know that in just one weekend, I'm going to be at People's Church in Salem, Oregon. And I will link back to that. So that's the 9th and 10th. And I will be there doing their women's event. You guys are going to love it. Come on out. The weekend after that, I'll be at Mache in South Dakota. And the weekend after that, Teach Them Diligently in Waco, Texas. So if you guys want more information about those events, please visit me online, HeidiStJohn.com forward slash events. All right, you guys, once in a while, I get to uh, wrestle Pastor Phil free from all the things he's doing there at Abundant Life Church. And I have asked if he would come on the show with me today and just answer some of your questions. You guys are sending in awesome questions. And I trust Phil. Phil is the senior pastor at Abundant Life Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, one of my favorite pastors. And I know you guys are going to be so encouraged. Pastor Phil, welcome back to the show. Heidi, you'll never have to wrestle me very hard to get me to come back. I come voluntarily. It's a joy. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm excited that you're here. And and actually, a lot of people may not know this. You were one of the people that encouraged me to step out of my comfort zone and run for Congress. One of the people I called. Yeah, I'm thrilled that you've done that and that you have got off the bench, Heidi. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> you are uh, you're going first and I think others will follow. We need people who will be courageous, who will step into the middle of culture with a biblical worldview and a courageous voice and uh, lead the way and that includes in government. And so government mm. is not a place that we can abandon as Christians because it's uh, going to be a train wreck if we do. And so I'm thankful for you getting involved. It's a wild ride. I told Jay the other day, I'm so far off the bench, I can't see it anymore. And I just want to go find it and take a nap. <laughs> oh, well, um, you have been an encouragement to me. We've talked several times on the show a lot about prophecy in particular, and we're going to tackle that today. I've got kind of a, a variety of listener questions that I thought, you know, I'm going to bring Pastor Phil on because I think your voice and your pastoral experience and knowledge is really going to help. And so if it's all right with you, I'm just going to jump right Let's in. Let's go. Enjoy. All right. So the first one comes from Stacy in Antioch, California. She said, Heidi, I've always believed that the book of Revelation is a future prophecy and that the church will be raptured. But I have a friend who believes that the prophecies of Revelation have already happened long ago. And there is no future Antichrist or tribulation or rapture of the church. I have never heard this and was hoping you could shed some light on it. So, Pastor Phil, what say you? Yeah, well, uh, there's no doubt about what I believe personally about this. This is an area of theology or doctrine on which godly people can disagree. And certainly there's some latitude and some liberty I think we need to give each other. We're really dealing here with the doctrine of the kingdom. You know, the theme mm -hmm. of the Bible is the kingdom from the moment God created Adam, put him in a garden and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. His plan was to establish a kingdom through the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. 
that would fill the earth and that would be image bearers that would bear the image of God and bring worship to God. And of course, Adam sinned. He lost that perfect image and that he died spiritually. Uh, so that commission was canceled and it's now being fulfilled in the last Adam, 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five. When we're born again, we get back all that Adam lost. We are born spiritually. So we get back the triune image of God and his likeness. We become an image bearer once again. We get back that title, child of God, and we become members of the kingdom of God. And so God's plan is still intact. What sin has delayed, it is not destroyed. And the doctrine of the kingdom, the theology of the kingdom is so important. This is what we are told Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection teaching on. That's how important it is. And so the cross wasn't just so we could go to heaven. The cross is really about a kingdom. The cross is about a crown, not just our salvation. And so for 40 days, Jesus is teaching on the kingdom and right up to his ascension in Acts chapter 1. Look at what it says the disciples are asking in verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. I want you to notice something. Jesus did not reprimand them or even correct them. He simply said, it's not for you to know the time. I'm going to, but it's only the Father who knows. It's in his time. So there are people who really believe that the kingdom is merely spiritual, that it's not literal or physical. And that's called all millennialism. They're good people. They're godly people. They love Jesus. But they believe, for example, the book of Revelation is all history, where it's all allegory, that there's no prophecy that's literally going to be fulfilled. And so all millennialism spiritualizes these kingdom promises and these kingdom prophecies, whereas what's called premillennialism believes there is a literal kingdom, an earthly kingdom, a physical kingdom. Christ will rule and reign literally for a thousand years. That comes from Revelation chapter 20, four times. We're told that it will last for a thousand years in Revelation chapter 20, that Satan will be bound for a thousand years, that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. So uh, while I certainly give other pastors and Christians the liberty to disagree on this one, I think the Bible is so emphatic. It is so clear. And Jesus, I think, is clear here. He didn't correct them and say, oh, guys, sorry, you misunderstood. The kingdom isn't literal. It's not physical. The Jews were expecting the Messiah to establish a literal physical kingdom. And they still were right up to his ascension. And notice he doesn't correct their thinking at all. All he says is, it's not for you to know the time. The Father has it in his time. And so you, you can look at parts of Revelation that clearly is not history. Uh, Revelation chapter 11 speaks of a future temple. Remember, it's about 95 AD when the Apostle John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The temple was destroyed 25 years earlier in 70 AD. And John writes this in chapter 11, verse 1, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, Heidi, there is nothing here that was fulfilled historically with the Roman invasion in 70 AD. When John is writing this, the temple's been destroyed. There's been no temple for 25 years. Clearly, 
he's referring to a yet future temple. And not coincidentally, it says the Gentiles will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, three and a half years, which is specifically what Daniel 9.27 refers to. When the future Antichrist causes the sacrifices to cease, midway through the seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, or uh, the last seven years of that 490-year prophecy articulated in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And, and so what we're dealing here with is a literal temple and a literal span of 42 months or three and a half years where uh, the Gentiles will tread the holy city of Jerusalem underfoot when the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty brokered that is clearly brokered for a seven-year peace covenant according to Daniel 927. So what happens is I think people take spiritually or allegorically promises and places in God's word that he speaks quite literally, Heidi. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, and I love your point because you're right. I actually hadn't thought about it that way. Jesus, if if they were wrong, if the disciples were wrong to say, hey, what's going on with the new kingdom, right? When are you going to come? When is this going to be established? He could have said, oh, that's not happening. Right. You know, he, he could have corrected them, but he didn't. He would have corrected them. And uh, see, this is what this is what all millennials believe. Well, well, it's not going to be a literal kingdom. It's just a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom is just only in our hearts. And when Jesus returns, Time ends, eternity begins, and all those promises that God meant literally will now just be done spiritually. And uh, again, I think it's really important that we interpret Scripture the way God intended it. When he makes a literal promise, he intends to keep it literally. I mean, think about this. If you made promises to your kids, like, hey, guys, we are going out for dinner tonight, and we're going to go to your favorite restaurant. And then we're going to go out for ice cream afterwards. Would they take you literally? Mom said, we're going to do this. And then it gets time to go. And you go, oh, guys, wait a minute. I just meant that symbolically. Like we're eating here tonight and we're going to have grilled cheese instead. No, no, no. Think about that. Can we believe what God says or not? I mean, let's take him the way he says it. And the way he clearly means it, when he's speaking literally, I think he wants to take him literally. When he's speaking symbolically, the Bible is full of symbolism. Let's take it symbolically, but even then, behind the symbolism, there is a literal meaning. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, the Bible becomes self-interpreting. It's self-defining. The simple truth is all the Abrahamic promises made in the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham and his physical seed, the Jews, They have not all been fulfilled. The Jews have never inhabited all of the land grant, the promised land promised to them in the Abrahamic covenant. And by the way, this is an everlasting covenant. See, theologians say, well, the covenant was broken when they crucified the Messiah. Now, wait a minute. Look in Genesis 17. God is clearly calling this an everlasting covenant that he's making with Abraham and his physical seed, the Jews. So, How can something be everlasting if it can be broken? How can something be everlasting if it's not binding, if it's built on terms and conditions? See, this is the same relationship we have with God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall have what? Everlasting life. 
So if we're not going to say that God meant everlasting when he told Abraham, I'm giving you this land as an inheritance, and it's an everlasting covenant. Well, that doesn't literally mean everlasting there. Then what's to say God means that when he says we have everlasting life, can we lose it? See, see, it got, God uses words specifically. I think we just need to take him seriously. This is what he said. This is what he meant. And Jesus was emphatic. He was very, very clear. And the Jews understood exactly what he meant. They were expecting a literal physical kingdom when he came. They expected him to overthrow the Roman kingdom and the Roman bondage and establish his kingdom physically. What they could not fathom 2,000 years ago when he walked into Jerusalem, uh, actually rode in on the back of a donkey, is that he had not come to conquer Rome. He'd come to conquer first sin. And having conquered sin, the day is coming. He's indeed going to conquer the kingdoms of this world. He came the first time on the back of a donkey because an ancient Israel kings saw a horse as a mount for war, but rather a donkey or a mule as a mount for peace. A peacetime mount was a mule or a donkey where a horse was the mount of a, of a king going off to war. Now check this out. Zechariah prophesied, He'd make his triumphal entry on the back of a donkey. Why? If they were paying attention, they would have known. He's not come to make war. He's come to make peace. Right? First Kings chapter 1, King David tells his men to put Solomon on his own mule so he can ride it through the streets. That was a peaceful transition of power from one king to the next. So what Jesus was doing in his triumphal entry by coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey what he was saying is, I haven't come to make war, I've come to make peace. By making war on sin, I'm going to make peace between God and men. Now, I want you to notice something. The next time he comes back, he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming back on a, on a horse. Revelation 19, mm-hmm. one. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness does he judge and make war. See, there's coming a time he is coming back not under the banner of peace because he's already made war on sin. He's coming back this time making war on the kingdoms of men. And then the kingdom of our God will be one and the same with the kingdoms of this world. It'll be the fulfillment of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I'm quite emphatic that these kingdoms will one day be one and the same literally with the kingdom of God and heaven will come to earth and that we are talking about a literal kingdom. And uh, before we get that, there is a literal seven years, Daniel prophesies of the 70 weeks or the 490 years of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, 483 of those years have been fulfilled. They were fulfilled by Christ's first coming. Daniel 9, 27 says there's Seven years yet remaining. There's 2,000 years in between where God's prophetic clock has not ticked because they crucified their Messiah. And as soon as this peace treaty, this covenant is signed, brokering peace for seven years between Israel and her enemies, God's prophetic clock will again begin to tick the last seven years, that countdown to the second coming of Christ. 
So you're saying right now that the clock has, has stopped effectively and God turned his attention to the Gentiles. Correct. But when this treaty is signed, that clock will begin to tick again and God will again turn his attention to the Jews. That's exactly right. This is what we're living in the time Paul called the times of the Gentiles. And so the times of the Gentiles began because the Jews indeed crucified their king. Think about this. Had the Pharisees received Jesus as the Messiah instead of crucifying him, Jesus still would have gone to the cross. The Romans would have put him to death as an upstart king. But what would have happened is that he would have resurrected after three days. He had to die for our sin. That was prophesied. That was going to happen regardless of whether the Jews received him or not. The Romans would have crucified him. But having resurrected from the dead, instead of ascending back into heaven, there would have been no church age, no times of the Gentiles. Then he would have got on a horse. (laughs) This time, he would have rode into Rome. He would have overcome the wicked fallen kingdoms of men to establish his own kingdom. The kingdom the Jews were expecting all along, and even his disciples right up to the moment he was about to ascend back into heaven, they're asking him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I want you to notice again, he doesn't correct their thinking. He doesn't rebuke them for their thinking. He doesn't reprimand them anyway. He just says, guys, it's not for you to know. And so there's, there's no, if, if we're going to say there's no literal rapture, no literal seven-year tribulation, no literal antichrist, guys, there's too many places in Scripture that will forever go unanswered and unfulfilled. Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year tribulation, that the seven years that's left of this 490-year prophecy, uh, it has no answer. It, it, it just hanging out there forever and ever. Well, revelation is worth. I, one of the things I love about what you're doing, and you have such a heart for shepherding and teaching there at at Abundant Life. But I've been so blessed. You did a whole series on Revelation, and uh, I watched that. I did a series for the women at MomStrong International on Revelation, and the Bible says that there's a blessing in studying revelation and it's worth it right for people to dig in and ask the lord hey holy spirit help me out well not only is it so it's so worth it my word there's a literal a blessing from god that he promises on those who study revelation uh but not only that remember revelation comes from the word apocalypse apocalypsis it means unveiling where god wants our eyes to be unveiled he doesn't want us to walk in darkness and confusion and deception and distortion and what in the world is going on. And so he's given us this book for a reason, to unveil our eyes to the end times, lest we be taken by surprise so that we can be ready and watching. Well, I hope you guys are enjoying this interview with my friend, Pastor Phil Hopper. In case you guys missed it, Pastor Phil is the lead pastor at Abundant Life Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. If you are anywhere in that area and you don't have a home church, consider going and checking out Abundant Life. Phil and his wife, Krista, have become dear friends of mine and my husband's, and I respect him tremendously, which is why he's on today. Phil's going to come back on Friday and again on Monday, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time together answering questions from listeners. We're going to start answering questions. I asked him specifically to talk about 
women pastors. I thought, man, it'd be great to have a pastoral voice. And so he's going to come talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about parents of prodigals, basically just jumping into a couple of uh, tender topics. And I trust Phil's discernment. He handles these things so beautifully. So I hope you guys will check that out in the days to come. I know you're going to be blessed. Before I leave today, I want to give a quick shout out to Diane from Portland, Oregon. And Diane, thank you so much for your support of this podcast. And also to Deborah from Cortland, New York. You guys, your uh, your podcast reviews that you leave over at iTunes, the donations that you make here to the Heidi St. John podcast, they are such a blessing. They're helping us do the thing that God's asked us to do. And we really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today, everybody. Hope you have a great afternoon. Love your families well today, you guys. They are a precious gift from God. And I will see you back here for part two tomorrow of my interview with Pastor Phil Hopper. For more encouragement, visit me online at thebusymom.com.